On the back of your bulletin is uh, an important announcement, especially for the parents that are here. Today we have an affirmation class. Mark does this every year, every other year, for third through fifth graders. And um, this is a time when we talk to them about things in our church that are important to us. Everything from baptism to communion and what these actually mean and, and why we practice what we practice. So please be praying about that. And uh, if you have kids in that age group, send them to the class. You can talk to Julie afterwards. Um, so you can look at that. Plenty of other stuff on there. Okay, we're in a series on holiness. And uh, I can tell that you're ready to move to the New Testament because I'm getting several people asking me, are we almost done with the Old Testament? <laughs> I love it when we get that question asked. That means you're starting to feel a little bit like the Israelites. When's the Messiah coming? (laughs) So what I would like to do is uh, I want to read to you portions of two prayers. These are out of Ezra and Nehemiah. So rather than pray, I'm going to let them pray for us. You have to understand where we are in the history We've uh, made it to the end of pretty much the Old Testament era as far as the written portion. These are the last two books, uh, most likely. If not, they're right at the very end. So the remnant has come back from the exile, and they're in, the, they're in Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding the temple. And uh, we're about to enter the period of 400-plus years of silence from the Lord. They're very aware that... This is not the end of exile because the glory of the Lord has not returned to the temple yet. They know that. They also know that they were sent into exile because of their sin. And so they're pretty determined not to repeat that. And uh, these are wonderful, two wonderful books because they read the law to the people for the first time. The people have been living in other countries for 50 years. And so they haven't heard it. They're not familiar with it. And what I want you to hear is the humility. A lot of times, we've said this more than once, and we'll keep saying it. Down here, it's easy for us, when we look back, to sit in judgment on God. That's not fair. Why would God do that? Right? Um, When we get into Romans, looking at some of the passages later on in the series... We're going to come across Paul's famous question, who are you to question God? Which is a very valid question. So these people have just come out of exile and they're back in the land. The city's destroyed. The wall's torn down. Temples doesn't exist anymore. They have to rebuild it. And they're very conscious of what their sin has caused them. Listen to these words. They're not angry at God. This is out of Ezra 9, Ezra's first. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. They know the truth. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Pause. How many of you feel that way? 
If you were kicked out of your country, sent into slavery and oppression, how many of you would stop and say, Lord, you are good, you are righteous, you are faithful? You may remember the big earthquake that happened three or four years ago in Nepal. And uh, we and several other groups got together and sent quite a bit of money over. And I went over there a month afterwards and uh, with the money. And the Christians did not, their houses were demolished. They didn't want to rebuild their houses. They wanted to rebuild the houses of their Hindu neighbors. And to this day, many of them still live in lean-to shacks, the Christians, because they recognized God's handiwork. How many of us think that way? What would we be thinking? How fast can I get my house, house be rebuilt? Right? How fast can that happen? He goes on, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. So our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Amazing words, isn't it? They're not sitting in judgment on God. When I turn to Nehemiah, this is in Nehemiah 9, this is a portion of his prayer. Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. There's that word we've kind of woven around in here, chesed. It's, it's a word that is fantastic. It talks about the love of God, that he will never break his covenant, ever. And he is faithful all the way to the end. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. No one's sitting in judgment on God here, are they? In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Those are good prayers. Do you sit in judgment on God? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Or do you remind the Lord of his faithfulness? God, in all this, you have acted righteously. You have been faithful. That's the beginning point. They understood. They got it. In this series on holiness, we're asking a core question. What does it look like to have a heart fully devoted to God? What does that actually look like? I've asked all along the series, when we talk about holiness... Do you think of it as uh, another set of rules? Or do you think of it as an invitation into a much deeper fellowship with the Lord? How do you think of it? We've looked at, uh, we've come a long ways. We've spent quite a bit of time in the law, the covenant, the old covenant. And we looked at how the covenant does two very, very good things. It reveals the character of God. He alone is holy. We should never forget that. We are not. It reveals the character of God. And I use the example, I can step into your family. I can step into your marriage. I can step into your workplace. And very quickly, I can discern your character. 
Do you, is your character one of patience, love, graciousness, gentleness? Is it demanding, harsh, unforgiving? It doesn't take long. Because when I step into your family, I'm really stepping into a covenant. The way you react and relate to someone else. And as parents, you put in place values and commands and things like that. that and rightfully so. There's no criticism there. But the character, your character is revealed by the dynamics that you establish wherever you are. And the law did that to us. It showed us the character of God. Uh, in the last, in the last uh, several weeks, I've had the opportunity to step into uh, the marriage of very, very, very close friends. They're in a different state. Um, and it's been going downhill for a long time, which I didn't know. And it was, um, <clears throat> it's, in, it's in included domestic violence, a lot of hostility. Uh, and they're talking to divorce attorneys. And so uh, they let me know it. And one of the commitments I make to people when I marry them is um, I don't charge for marriage, but in return, you have to give me the right to step into your marriage anytime I choose. And I have done it. Played that card. And I played the card. And so I listened to her first, and I made a list of all the verbs that she used. And when she got done, I said, you know, I love you too much to let you get away with this. I want you to listen to all the verbs you use to describe your spouse. And I said, uh, do you really feel comfortable sitting in the place of God? You're not saying things like, I feel hurt. You're saying he's trying to hurt me. That's a divine prerogative to attack somebody's motives and address them. You have no idea what he's really trying to do. Is that where you really wanted to be when you got married? Is that where you wanted to, is that where you want to be right now? And then I listened to him and did the same thing with him. All I did was step in on two conversations and quickly got a sense of what's going on in the marriage. Uh, by God's grace, they are working it through. They've both contacted me. They're back in conversations. And I just asked them, is that really what you want? Do you, I know you didn't get married to end your marriage. I know it's not what you desired. But that's where you are. You're sitting on the edge of the cliff. It's your choice what you do with it. It's not mine. It's your marriage, not mine. And they're, they're trying to salvage it. And they're trying to save it and work on it. Step into a family. Step into a marriage. Step into a work culture. And you quickly learn the culture. You quickly learn the character of the person who's in power. Who's in charge. Don't you? That's what the law showed us. The character of a holy God. Yes. Who is demanding. But the other thing the law did was it reveals the character of the other side. So those of you that have teenagers, you, uh, some of you in here, I'm sure, are perfect parents. I'm really glad you're in our church because we need a few. Uh, and the most perfect family in the world, the teenagers still have free will. What was God thinking? Right? I, having been on both sides of that, the teenager and the parent, and now the grandparent of teenagers, it's like, man, that pattern just goes on and on and on. And so even when you do it perfect, your teenagers still have the right to stick it to you, don't they? They have the freedom to do that. And so the other side gets revealed as well. And that's what the, the law of God did, is it reveals both sides of that 
covenant, that character. It revealed that God is gracious, loving, and holy always. And it reveals that we are not. It revealed that even in spite, the Israelites, when they listened, they said, everything that God has asked, we will do. And immediately, within a couple of days, failed. Immediately. And it kept going on and on and on. The pattern. So by the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, they're now saying, our, our wickedness, our sin has reached the heavens. That's pretty high. That's pretty deep. Right? And that's what's happened. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. So over the last couple of weeks, we have um, been wrestling with the human side of it, the impure heart peace, that that's what's broken. Okay? So today I want to begin the gradual turn into the New Testament to begin to take a look at what did God do? But I want to start with a question. I'm going to read this again out of uh, John Oswalt. I'm going to let him express He does a great job. What was the means by which the promised Holy Spirit would come to God? So the question itself lets you know where we're heading. What was the means by which the promised Holy Spirit would come upon the people of God? Before Jesus left the earth in his ascension, he made a rather enigmatic statement, which gives us a clue to the answer to the question. He told the disciples in Luke 24, right at the end, after the resurrection, he's getting ready to ascend. He told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, you're probably familiar with that. Go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Interestingly, the apostles raised no questions about this statement. This was not their normal approach when Jesus said things, even things which seemed quite clear to us. Very often he had questions to ask. Jesus said, so Jesus said, you know where I'm going. They responded, we have no idea where you're going. Often when he made statements, they're scratching their heads going, what? But not this time. He said, okay. You might expect him to say, what promise of the Father? But they did not. Why? Why? This is an important question in redemptive history. Is it possible? I believe it is. He asks, is it possible that in this case... Jesus finally said something that they expected the Messiah to say. Is that possible? I think that's what happened. So many times Jesus had said things that they had never expected a Messiah to say and they were confused and upset. You're going to die? You're not going to die? I won't deny you. You're going to deny me. I'm not going to deny you. What are you talking about? But not this time. Here, they seem to accept the enigmatic statement with no trouble. This suggests that the statement was not confusing or enigmatic to them. Indeed, it was quite intelligible, and they expected it on the Messiah's lips. Okay, we're going to begin to look at what happened. The problem has been surfaced. The Old Testament ends with the problem raw and laying right on the table. Everybody knows what it is. The law is good. I can't keep it. It's not possible. So when Jesus made this statement here, uh, he's beginning to turn, make a turn. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah show a very special and intimate connection between his mission 
and the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. Now let's pause. What is the mission of God? That's the language that we use regularly. What's the mission of God? The mission of God is to reach this world for Christ. That's what the mission is. Tread on glass. As disciples of Jesus, our mission is to love, serve, and teach. That's our mission. Why did God leave us here? Not to mature us. You do that that fast. The moment I die, I'm pretty mature then. <laughs> Finally. No. That's not why he left us here. He left us here because we have work to do. Bringing Christ out to the nations. I was on an airplane yesterday coming back from Maine. And I was out for board meetings for a mission that I'm involved in. And I'm on the plane and the man sitting next to me, we get to talking. And he has a different sexual orientation than I do. And so somewhere in the conversation, he says, uh, we're, just, we're just talking. Light, nothing complex. And, and all of a sudden, his eyes get a little moist. I said, are you okay? And he said, no, my partner of 30 years just died. And then he started to cry. I just put my arm around him. And I said, I lost a wife. I know those feelings. If you don't mind me asking, did you expect it? He said, no. No, in fact, when I left, he told me. He told me, you be careful, you fly a lot. And while I was traveling, he died of a heart attack. And I, we just talked. So I asked him questions. I just asked him, do you have a Christian background? Do you know anything about the Christian faith? No, I don't know anything about it. I'm not involved in that kind of thing. So we had a, we just had a conversation while we were flying. A very good conversation. I was honest with him about my beliefs about the resurrection and things like that. So I get off the plane. <clears throat> we part ways. And I, what I didn't know was the lady behind me was listening. So she came up to me and she said, uh, she came up and chastised me. She said, you need to learn how to share the gospel with him and tell him this is sin. Okay. Is that how you would approach it? Yeah, and she gave me a copy of the four spiritual laws. And, and really got in my face. You know, She said, I'm just making the assumption that you're not very educated. You don't know how to do that. <laughs> I was just kind to her. And threw it in the trash when I walked away. And just reminding me once again how easy it is, how easy it is to reveal our character. I would suggest and argue that my conversation was far more productive because we actually did talk about Jesus and his love for us. And I would argue that that was more, a more effective way than what I got criticized and chastised for. The mission of God. If we treated people that way, imagine what happened if God treated us that way. Every single one of you coming into the kingdom had something that was a filthy rag to the Lord, Isaiah says. And I look back on my own past, talking about telling the story. It's not a good story. It's redemptive. But I would love to change pieces of it. You know, drugs, immorality, my own story. I was 19 when I came to Christ. And I'm so grateful for the Lord's patience. 
to walk with me. And the people he brought into my life that were very careful how to help me understand who I am before the Lord. This is a mission of God. Now, when you begin to look in the Old Testament, you see the mission of God language all throughout the Bible. And the Messiah is always connected, always connected to the Spirit in this regard. In fact, I would argue that the connection between the Messiah and the Spirit is clearer in the Old Testament than the message about the atoning death of Jesus. I mean, we have Psalm 22, we have Isaiah 53, but we just have a few passages. They're important, but we have a plethora of passages about the Spirit and pouring, being poured out on all of humanity and bringing redemption to a very broken world that they could not keep the law. They just couldn't. It was impossible. So, I think the disciples understood this. But before we look uh, into the Old Testament of where these connections are made, let's start with the New Testament just for a moment. All four of the Gospels talk about the Messiah and the Spirit, the connection between them. They all have very similar stories. Now, this is amazing because in the Gospel of John alone, there's only 10% of the Gospel of John that occurs in the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So wherever they happen to overlap and all four of them talk about it, that is extremely significant, very important. So John, for example, talks about Jesus' baptism. That occurs. Okay, the Spirit of God came down. He clarified that the primary difference between himself and the Messiah Okay, so John is clarifying because he gets asked that question, are you the Messiah? And he answers, no. And the difference is that while he himself baptizes with water, the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's found in all four Gospels. Now, the amazing thing about it is that he only gave like three or four sentences. John the Baptist preaching what's recorded uh, is very short, very enigmatic. It's only three or four sentences, but yet the Gospels tell us that all of Jerusalem and Judea came out to hear him. Why? Why would they come out to hear him with just these few simple statements? I think it's because they knew the hope that God would fulfill the covenant and send the Spirit. And he used that kind of language. And so you had different strands of theology developing within Judaism. And what he does is he takes those different strands and he ties them together in one short sentence. Well, three short sentences. And everybody got intrigued and they wanted to hear. And they came. And then he clarifies and says, The one who's coming, thong of a sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie it. He'll baptize with the Spirit. That was the difference. So the gospel writers understood that Jesus' primary goal in coming into the world was to give the Holy Spirit to people, not in his atoning death. Now that's important. Keep that in mind. The atoning death was an intermediary step to something bigger. So the, the cross, the resurrection, only makes sense when you get to Pentecost. That's the far bigger picture presented in the Old Testament. God went so far as to let Jesus or let John know that the way he would recognize the Messiah was when the Spirit rested on him. That's in John one thirty three, 
And I himself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's the Messiah. That's how they knew the Messiah would come. They would see, they would recognize the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. The atoning sacrifice of the Messiah, what happens on the cross, okay, it is very important, but it was necessary to cleanse the temple so that the Holy Spirit could take up residence. The very thing that Ezra and Nehemiah knew had not happened. The glory of the Lord did not return. The reason they were sent into exile was their sin had not been forgiven. So they knew that sin had to be forgiven for the Holy Spirit to come back and dwell in the temple. The glory of God. They knew that. That is the cross, resurrection, and Pentecost. Those two things. That's why in the book of Acts, I think there's like 16 evangelistic sermons recorded. None of the people sharing the gospel in the book of Acts ever talk about the cross. It's not there. Surprisingly, that was the most struggle. That was the hardest assignment I had in seminary was to go and come back and defend an atonement theology of the cross from the evangelistic sermons in Acts. It can't be done. They never said those words. They talked about the far bigger picture that the Old Testament promised would happen, that God would send his spirit. Now, hear me, hear me correctly. I'm not saying the atoning sacrifice is not important. It is absolutely critical. But when we limit ourselves to only that, we're missing the bigger picture. There's a much bigger thing at, in play here from God. And that is reaching this entire creation. And that's the glory of the Lord, sin being forgiven, cleansing the temple, the spiritual temple, and the glory of the Lord returning. So the Old Testament believers, they look forward with anticipation to the moment when God would send His Messiah and fill His people with the Spirit. When that happened, there would be a message of hope, new life, renewal, all kinds of things. I'm going to read to you just several passages. They'll be up on the screen. We'll read them together. One is out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit, now what I did here was I put the word Spirit in caps throughout many of these passages to emphasize it. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, now before we go on, this is what was quoted in Luke 4, Jesus' first statement about it in his public ministry. When he stood up in the little town and the little uh, synagogue in his hometown, he quoted this verse: "The spirit of the Lord is on me." That's a statement. I am the Messiah. But then look at what he goes on. This is what he says. This is what Isaiah says next. In the day of vengeance, he's also going to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Beauty should be part of our conversation. I think we would all argue that right here is one of the top ten beautiful spots in the world. God is a God who cares about beauty. We should listen music. We should look art. We should feel. We should enjoy the beauty around us. God is very much interested in beauty. And here it comes up. Many other places as well. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord 
for the display of his splendor. This is why creation was given to us. To display his splendor. To help us see how wonderful he is. Interestingly enough, when you look at the the gospel messages in Acts, you know where they usually start? The God who made all of this. Do you want to you want to share the gospel with your unsaved friends? Start here. If the heavens shout the glory of God, take your friends for a hike and what they see. Let God shout his own glory. It's very powerful. But then you have uh, Isaiah chapter 11. <clears throat> a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. This is a Messiah, by the way. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. There's that connection. The spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah. Or you have Isaiah 32. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured on us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest the lord's justice will dwell in the desert his righteousness live in the live in the fertile field the fruit of that righteousness will be peace the effect will be quiet confidence forever that's what happens when the spirit of god is poured out the messiah comes isaiah 42 Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. You know, that's the gospel right there. Galatians 3.8. God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, that in him all the nations would be blessed. There it is. That's what happens when the Messiah comes. The gospel will be preached to all the nations. We care about the nations. Our church is heavily invested in work locally as well as abroad. In fact, next Sunday, right after church, I catch a shuttle to the airport and going to Kathmandu, Nepal. Church finishes 11.15. I catch a shuttle 11.30. Right to the airport. Going to Nepal. Two weeks. And I just found out yesterday, I'm teaching two classes, not one. That's the way it works. They want me to do an exegetical class in one of the Hebrew, one of the Old Testament courses from Hebrew. I'm a New Testament major. But you learn to do it. They have this confidence that the Holy Spirit will give you strength. Whatever you need to do, he'll help you to do it. Boy, that certainly makes sense. What, what did Jesus say? Don't worry when people ask you. The Spirit will give you the words to say. If any one of you ask, lacks wisdom, James says, ask the Lord, he will give it. That's what happens when you go overseas. You often don't know what's going to happen. Some of you heard the story when I was in India. One time I'm driving back to the airport, getting ready to get on a plane to come home. I'm tired, exhausted. I've taught my heart out that I'm ready. I'm so ready to get on that plane. And we're going to the airport and we're supposed to go straight and we make a left turn. Hmm. So we drive a little bit further and we're continuing down the road. And I asked my interpreter, I said, do they have construction going on? He goes, no, we're going to make a stop on the way. I said, oh, okay. Figure we stop by a store or something. So where are we stopping? He said, uh, they're having an international missions conference right here in the city. There's about 600 uh, Indian missionaries here uh, for the conference. I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. He says, yeah, they have a guest speaker today. We're going to hear him. And I said, who's that? And he said, you. (laughs) 
as we pull into the parking lot. Do we care about them? Do we care about the nations? We should. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the mission of God. God cares about this entire planet, every human on it. That's the gospel, according to Galatians 3. I just gave you four texts. There are many more. Many, many, many more that connect the coming of the Messiah to fulfill the kingdom of God in this world with the anointing of the Spirit. They got it. This is what was talked about in Matthew chapter 3. All these passages come together at this point. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is history in the making right here with this verse. All of the Old Testament pointed to this right here. Finally, the kingdom has come. Okay, so when the Holy Spirit came, the promise of the Father, what would he do? I'm going to read to you the three great texts of what we call the New Covenant. God's going to make a new covenant. One's out of Isaiah, one's out of Jeremiah, one's out of Ezekiel. First one's out of Isaiah 44. And you just listen to these words. Soak it up. These are the three great texts of when he comes. This is what he's going to do. But now listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. God is not a God of wrath in the Old Testament, God of grace in the New Testament. He is not bipolar. He is always a God of love who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on all of your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That's what's coming. They knew They couldn't keep the covenant. Something was broken. It's in here. And this is the answer. Let me move from there to Jeremiah. This is a famous one in Jeremiah. This is quoted in its entirety in the book of Hebrews. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the promise of Sinai, Exodus 19. If you obey my commands fully, I will be your God, and you will be my people. They figured out they couldn't keep the covenant. Something's broken here. And so God is now promising this is a reality that's going to happen. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. This is in Jeremiah. Why were they exiled? Because of their sin and their wickedness. This is the promise of hope. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And then finally, Ezekiel 36. 
I will take you out of the nations. All three of these prophets, by the way, are writing right at the time when the southern kingdom is coming to an end. They're being exiled. Oh, two things. You cross the line. There's no hope. You're going into exile, but God is not has not forgotten his promise. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries, bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Think about the prayers of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the, the dirt and the wickedness. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart Remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will be my people and I will be your God. He's going to bless his people by sending the spirit. That's his answer to the problem. From here on out, we're going to take a look at how that's the answer. So, after reading those passages, here's what's coming. Here's what is reality to us. It was future hope for them. He will enter into a new covenant with his people. We have a new covenant. He would write his law upon their hearts. We have a new heart. He would develop a personal relationship with each one. Each one of us has a relationship with the living God. He would forgive their sin. Our sin has been forgiven. The exile has ended. That happened at the cross. He would end the exile that was caused by their sin. We have been brought back. He would cleanse them with his spirit. He would give them a new heart of flesh. And his glory would once again fill the temple. We have seen his glory as of the only begotten. The glory of the Lord has filled the temple. That's us. It has happened. All right, so what does all this mean? The God, God's answer to our broken and sinful spirit is, in fact, the coming spirit. To our broken and sinful spirits, his answer is sending the spirits. And this is what we're going to explore from here on out all the way to Lent and uh, Easter as we move into the New Testament. The differences between the covenants, the old and the new, are very simple but staggering. Let me tell you what is not the difference. It is not different in content. God's expectations are still the same. Although a command may have changed, some of the commands. But what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, all of the law is dependent. That's how he summed up the entire law. So the content between the Old Covenant and New Covenant has not changed. Also, he's not a different God. He is not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. That's not true. Oh, he doesn't mind kicking you in the rear when you need it. The entire Old Testament is pointing us in that direction. Here is the difference. Very simple. The Old Covenant was external. The New Covenant is internal. You see, the Old Covenant, um, it revealed the brokenness of humanity, our brokenness. It revealed our inability to keep our promises to God. But as Paul said, in that regard, it was hugely successful. It was a school teacher, a master to bring us to Christ. It brought Ezra and Nehemiah to their knees when they realized our evil, our sinfulness has reached the very heavens. 
you have been faithful. We are not. That was his purpose. It was successful. The new covenant is internal. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, the temple has now been cleansed. We have been cleansed of our sin. That's what the cross accomplished. Our sin has been forgiven. The exile has ended. The Spirit has now taken up residence in His new temple. That's us. The glory of the Lord returns. God is now working from the inside out rather than the outside in. That's why Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2 quotes Joel chapter 2. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So we just learned all gender barriers are removed. All age barriers are removed. All class barriers are removed. And all ethnic barriers are removed. Next week, we have a special Sunday planned. Before we start Lent, Sunday after next is Lent. And all of Lent, we're going to spend in the New Testament exploring what this new covenant really means. Because Paul refers to it over and over again. It really gives us a lot of information in the book of Romans. So next week, because of this, all of our ethnic barriers are removed. We're going to have a celebration of diversity. You have to wait till next week to find out what that means. But we're planning it to help us celebrate. When I say diversity, don't think politically. Think theologically. God made us different for a very good reason. It's a delightful reason. It's so wonderful. I think about it all the time. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. And then this will be the topic from here on out to Easter. We'll leave you with a question. I've asked it before. Are you willing to trust God? Don't say yes. Israelites did that. Got them in trouble. Are you willing to trust, trust God even when you don't understand and more importantly, when you don't agree? Just, you think about that. Father, thank you for being a God who is holy and being the only one in all of creation who is holy. Thank you for remembering us, loving us, coming back for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.